Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I'm so happy to welcome back returning guest, Ask Dr. Death, the host of the Ask Dr. Death podcast, my good friend, Dr. Terry Daniel. So welcome back, Terry, to Mindship Podcast. Thank you, my friend. It's wonderful to be with you always. I listen to your podcast, everyone. I listen to your Zoom meetings. I'm a big fan. That's true. I love having you on the Zoom calls because you always ask such interesting questions. We just had one the other week with Jonathan Larson, and we had a really good chat. I think you had to go a little bit early, though, didn't you? Yeah, usually it's at that time of day, I usually can't stay for the whole thing. But we did. What were we talking about? Some biblical scripture thing. Um, uh, I can't remember. I'll have to go back and figure it yeah. out. Yeah, well, we were talking about his work with uh, investigative journalism on the Fellowship Foundation, otherwise known as The Family. If people have seen that series, uh, it's from the book by Jeff Charlotte. So that was a really interesting thing. We were talking about the freedom for, or my question was about the Freedom from Religion Foundation, Mm -hmm. not suing, but bringing something up to Congress about. The the prayer breakfast, it's the the national prayer prayer breakfast. breakfast. That's what it was, because the question was, did they did they try to sue or sue the family or the Fellowship Foundation? Actually, it was that they were alerting different congressmen and women and senators about their involvement with the prayer breakfast because they didn't know a lot about it. But yeah, so that was a fascinating conversation. Actually, if people want to watch that call, I'll put a shameless plug in here. It's on the Mindship Podcast Facebook page, the public Facebook page. So I just posted that so they can go have a look. But we're here to talk about a really cool event that you've got coming up, which is called the Conference on Death, Grief, and Belief. It's going to be July 15th to the 17th of this year. It's actually held in Portland, Oregon, but I think, isn't it true you're going to make the the conference available online as well for people who can't make it? Yes, uh, we're not going to do a live stream, but um, because what I've learned from doing these conferences for a long time is that people don't watch the live stream. They watch it later after the fact, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they watch an hour here and an hour there. They don't sit during real time and watch the actual live um, broadcast. So I realized that it, it's very expensive to do a live broadcast like mm-hmm. that. And I thought, why not just record everything and people can just buy the recordings They don't because they're not going to come to the real live, you know, real time one anyway. So mm-hmm. everything will be recorded, every single presentation. Uh, and if you can't come in person to Portland, Oregon, then you can see the whole conference from the comfort of your own computer. That's true. Thanks to technology, because I'm fortunate to be one of the presenters there. So I'm going to be doing a thing. In fact, we're, we just talked about it before we hit record, didn't I? So we're going to do a thing for Ask Dr. Death a little bit. We're going to give people a little bit of a preview on what I'm going to be talking about. So I'm over here in the UK. I won't have to travel, even though as much as I would love to go back to Portland, I used to live there. We lived there for about 13 and a half, 14 years. I love Portland, but unfortunately I cannot make it because of COVID and work and everything else. So I'm glad for technology. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Because a lot of people who are speaking at the conference are coming from overseas. We have a guy in Germany, um, Josh Bowen, he's on the East coast, uh, but he is going to be at a conference someplace. So he's going to be coming in, you know, calling in from wherever Mm -hmm. he is. And so, yeah, so, yeah, so we so it's live. All the live presentations are going to be on Saturday, and the virtual presentations are going to be also on Saturday, but in a different room. I've never done a conference like this before. It'll be very interesting. So we'll have the the Zoom screen thing going on in one room, and the live in the other room. But all of it will be recorded, and uh, so everybody can see everything. You won't yeah, miss that's it. amazing. So they'll be able to, as you say, purchase the, if they miss the episodes live, then they can, well, it's not live, except for the in-person ones, they can watch all the sessions later on at their own convenience. So yes, the miracles of technology in our culture today, well, it's because of COVID, isn't it? COVID has taught us that 
most of us can actually work from home. We can do stuff on Zoom and Skype and everything else, can't we? Yeah, and it's it's never going to go back to the way that it was. I mean, if it wasn't for COVID, I wouldn't have any of my teaching jobs right mm-hmm. now. Because, you know, where I teach at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, when I first got hired two years ago, I was actually living in California, and I would have had to drive to Berkeley once a week, which would make me just want to blow my brains out with the traffic and everything down there. And then COVID happened, and they said, oh, we'll we'll do it online. And so we started doing it online, and the, the university likes it so much because they can get so many more students. Mm, a win-win for them and for you yeah it's it's a financial win you know it's a it's a marketing coup because now in my classes i have people coming in from korea and south africa and all over the world which could not have happened otherwise absolutely yeah yeah so it's one of those hidden strange benefits but i'm looking at your website here it's deathgriefandbelief.com certainly people can find out more information about the conference there can't they It's really fascinating reading the description of this conference. It talks about deconstructing culture, myth, and meaning. Because I'm thinking, okay, what's this about? The conference on death, grief, and belief. And you say, our mission is to create a safe space for unpacking religious beliefs and spiritual concepts that can be disempowering and harmful when facing loss and grief. By deconstructing religious doctrines that cause confusion and cognitive dissonance, we can build a philosophical framework with no absolutism, where guilt and shame are not used to manipulate believers and where leaders don't claim certainty or spiritual authority. So can you unpack a little bit for us what that mission statement means? Yeah, I'm good at writing academic mission statements. (laughs) It sounds really (laughs) academic. It really did. I know, I can't help it. Um, Well, basically, it's, it's a gathering place for everybody who's at any place on the spectrum of deconstruction. And there it's, you know, we've got presentations. I think a better way to explain it is just like look at the content. So, you know, we've got everything from speaking of academics, you know, very academic presentation for counselors and psychologists and professionals about, you know, something called complicated spiritual grief. So if you're dealing with grief, if someone you love died or you had a loss of any kind and there is some kind of religious thinking built in there, like let's say, Uh, a loved one died from suicide. And you may not believe in all those church doctrines anymore, but it's been programmed into your head all your life that suicides go to hell. And you know in your rational, adult, mature mind that that isn't true, but you still wonder, like, what if it really is true? And what if my friend is in hell? Mm -hmm. So you're going back and forth and back and forth. So there's that, you know, we have content for that level of struggle. We also have content for absolute... um, proud and out atheists. We have Mm -hmm. Seth Andrews as our Friday night keynote, and he will be there in person. And uh, we have Frank and Dan from the Thank God I'm Atheist podcast. And you, of course, Clint, um, speaking on behalf of atheists, but also seekers and people in process, I would say that your position is Mm -hmm. about, right? And then um, we've got, um, you know, former evangelicals. We have a guy who's a scholar on the Hebrew Bible talking about conceptions of the afterlife in, you know, the ancient Near East. Hmm. Uh, We have um, talking people, the, the other people on the spectrum here are not necessarily hardcore materialist, empirical atheists. Some of them are still a little spiritual, like me, I'm one of those people. And so we have somebody talking about, you know, is it possible to be spiritual and have mystical experiences without believing in God? And what is God anyway? How are we going to define that? Mm -hmm. Let's see what else we have. Um, Gregory Shushin is really cool guy who's done research on near death experiences throughout history. Like, you know, people didn't just start having near-death experiences in the 1970s. It's been mm-hmm. around forever. So he talks about, you know, people and tribes in different parts of the world and ancient history having these experiences where they were clinically dead, but then were resuscitated and had some sort of out-of-body experience. And in that vein, we also have a guy, Peter Panagor, who had a near-death experience, he froze to death on a mountain ice climbing um, trip. 
and he was helicoptered off the mountain dead and then he was resuscitated and he has this whole story to tell about what he experienced while he was dead that had zero religious content and that's really the point is so we've got the spectrum where we've got absolute atheism there's nothing beyond the physical world if you can't see it and touch it and prove it scientifically it doesn't exist so we have that on one end and on the other end we have people who have have journeyed through these non-physical dimensions and are saying yeah these non-physical dimensions exist but there's no Jesus there. There's no golden streets and pearly gates. You know, that stuff is mm -hmm. all doctrine. So you can have that without the religious context. Mm -hmm. You use the word deconstruction. It occurred to me that maybe that has a different meaning for different people. Could you unpack a little bit of what you mean by that word deconstruction? Uh, how does that apply? And, and then how does that apply specifically to this issue of death and dying and grief, because that's obviously your specialty, isn't it, is the area of hospice care and that sort of thing. Yes, that's what I do. I work with um, death and grief. And deconstruction uh, is a word that I learned from all the atheist podcasts. That oh, I, right. to. I didn't come up with that. <laughs> that's and ironic. Even, yeah. And even I don't know what it means. You know, what uh, to me, it means like unpacking, like you, you, if you are steeped in religion in a re if you grew up in a religious community or a religious cult you are packed into a construction like a concrete building right and so when you're trying to come out of that it's like you have to take that building apart stud by stud you know with a wall by wall piece by mm -hmm. piece breaking down the concrete that's what i think it means um people also say deconvert and that's a term that I don't understand because to me, to deconvert means there would first have to be a conversion. So you didn't grow up in the religion, but when you were 18, you were became a born again Christian and you converted into it. And now you're deconverting back out of it. Mm -hmm. I think I it know. does. Yeah, it, it has that spectrum of meaning, doesn't it? You can certainly look at it from a philosophical point of view which is where I first came across it because it was popularized in, in literary studies, I think by Derrida, that's, that's kind of where the, maybe the word deconstruct. I think he may have coined that word. I'm not sure, but it means a lot of different things. I tried reading Derrida and it's just, it's just about impossible. He's like a postmodern philosopher and it's, it's virtually impossible. And then someone turned around and said, that's the point, you know, you're not supposed to get it. You say that's the whole thing. But I came across when I was an evangelical deconstructionist interpretations of the Bible. So even then people were using it to like compare different interpretations of the Bible and different traditions and, you know, compare and contrast the differences there. So I think even in that sense, maybe it could relate to the way we were raised. You know, we, we compare and contrast traditions and go, when I find out someone else was raised in a completely different way, they thought they had the truth. And so did I you think, wait a minute. Could we both be right or both be wrong? You know, so it leads to a lot of questions, doesn't it? That's a really good um, point. So you can actually deconstruct within a religion. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Yes, you can. Good. Yeah, I, I came across a really interesting, there's a, an article that's a deconstructionist interpretation of the book of Job. And that's a really fascinating study because it pits the interpretations against each other, the sort of traditional interpretations. And what it comes away with is, you think, okay, none of these things really answer the questions of suffering and grief and death, which has obviously long been an issue within both you know, Jew Jewish studies as well as historic Christianity. Do you ever get into the book of Job at all in, in your studies? Because oh, that's a big one, isn't it? I'm big time into the book of Job. I mean, all right, I, are you? I, a big piece of my new book is I have a whole chapter on the book of Job and right. it was in my, in my doctoral dissertation. And the, you know, the fascinating thing about it is it doesn't give you an answer. Mm -hmm. It just says, look how fucked up this is. Yeah. And, and <laughs> that's it. Period. <laughs> that's end of story. It <laughs> gets everything back at the end though. That's the thing, isn't it? It's well, like that's a, the thing. Yeah, a feel good everything. ending. And then you got to wonder like, you know, if you're going to take this literally of, you know, did he get the same wife back? She was reincarnated. She was raised from the dead. Did he get the same kids mm -hmm. back? They were all dead, right? Or a, whole well, new, a new set of kids. A new and set somehow of somehow makes up for it all. Yeah. And he maybe got a hot young wife, you know, it doesn't really <laughs> tell us that. But, you know, what it is, the book of Job is 
these human beings, whoever it was that came up with these stories, trying to make sense of suffering, just like we all do, just like we're doing now. But and because it's so hard to actually come up with an explanation of why suffering happens, you have to put it in mythical terms, right? Mm. You have to steep it in symbolism because you really can't explain it any other way. So they make up this silly, you know, nursery rhyme story about God and the devil playing a game with this poor dude um, just to make the statement <laughs> again, it doesn't make any statement. It, it kind of goes against the doctrine because the doctrine says, if you're a really good guy, everything will go well for you. Yes. But Job says, no, not for this guy. And why? And there is no why. Yeah, he never so gets we, an answer, does he? We never get an answer. As far as the book relays it. And that's the interesting thing about the book of Job, isn't it? Is, yeah, like you say, there's this cosmic bet. It's kind of like the movie Trading Places. You know, it's that same kind of deal, isn't it? I love that movie. Rich, powerful people way up above you that you don't even know are destroying your life for reasons that you'll never fathom. You'll never understand, you know, and you've just got to, you know, deal with it on the on the back end of the whole thing. And that's that's the thing, isn't it? And I think it's funny because Job is a weird one because the prosperity gospel preachers have a real problem with the book of Job. They don't like Job because in their view, as you say, if you do everything right, God should bless you financially and everything. And Job was being blessed. So he didn't. And then he ended up getting screwed over and got everything taken away. And yet he did nothing wrong. So even in the, the grief and the suffering, the book of Job doesn't really answer those questions, does it? You know, maybe the only answer it has is like, if you're really devoted, you'll let God just kick your ass to the ends of the earth and your devotion will stay solid. I think mm -hmm. that's the message it's trying to say, because he never yeah. gave up his faith. That's right? it. His wife told him, yeah, curse God and die. And he said, no, I'm not going to do it. So yeah, that, that's another whole aspect of, and, and that's what I wonder about this, even this conference too. What is it about specifically religion and these issues of death and grief and suffering that brings these things out to such a sharp focus? Is that when you really see what a person's beliefs actually are when push comes to shove, as it were? Sometimes um, it's it's where you usually see what their fears are, maybe not their beliefs, mm -hmm. but their questions. I mean, it's the great existential moment. And I'll tell you an example, because I actually posted this on your Facebook page this morning. Oh, right. So it's actually on there. It's right actually now. there. Yeah. And so here's is somebody um, in another Facebook group that I mentioned uh, that I run said she posted this thing and she said my mother is dying she's in hospice and can anybody here give me some advice on how i can help her feel more comfortable and more at peace because she's a little agitated and she's not really letting go and you know she, how can i help her go and so a lot of the people in my facebook groups are hospice workers and people posted all these lovely suggestions and this one woman posts this thing and I approved it and put it on there just because I wanted to start a discussion. And here's what she, here's her advice. Tell your mom, if she doesn't repent of her sins and ask the Lord to save her when she dies, she will open her eyes in hell forever and ever. This is very important. She can have everlasting life in heaven. Our spirit goes to heaven or hell. Oh, that's not, not black and white at all. <laughs> <laughs> so this is what this person is suggesting that this woman say to her mother on her deathbed. Wow. So uh, the comments are fascinating, but I'm, I bring that up as an example because this is what I deal with all the time. This is what we see in hospice. So I've had so many situations where I've had a family member like that and mom is maybe an atheist or a Unitarian or who knows what doesn't matter, but she's not a Christian. And the daughter is sitting there crying and begging hysterically, mom, you're going to die in a couple of days here. Please, please, please repent and find Jesus or I won't ever get to see you in eternity. We won't see each other in heaven. Don't you want to be in heaven with me? And the mother's probably thinking, no, not really. <laughs> I don't want to be with you anymore. <laughs> but this really happens. And so, you know, what do we do as um, as counselors and chaplains, you know, when we're in a situation like that? Mm -hmm. Religion certainly is one way to make sense of the death 
process, isn't it? Because speaking of Facebook, I just saw a post a couple of days ago from a friend of mine. I Somehow I'm still friends with him. I don't know. I've unfriended a lot of people that I went to Christian high school with in Seattle because they're still fundamentalists and Trump supporters and all that. But for some reason, this one guy is still there. But he posted that his father had recently passed away. And he said, you know, this nice long post. And I was reading it thinking, you know, this is a good sort of obituary about this man. And at the end, of course, he said he walked with the Lord and we all can rejoice knowing that he's walking the streets of gold now and that he's not no longer in pain. And he had to end it with that sort of evangelical spin at the end, honoring this man's life. And I thought I was thinking of you actually thinking, ah, <laughs> I wonder what Terry Daniel would think of this. I mean, that's just a classic spin at the end, isn't it? You know, um, it reminds me of a joke that a Mormon guy told me that I was thought was pretty funny that he would tell a joke about this, but I, I'm not good at telling jokes, but I'm gonna tell it anyway. Maybe you can mm-hmm. edit it out. So this rich guy, he hoards all his riches and he packs a bag for when he dies and he puts in this little suitcase chunks of gold. That's how rich he is. And he's because he wants to take his wealth to heaven with him when he dies. So now he's old and he dies and he goes to heaven and St. Peter greets him, you know, and the guy goes, wow, you know, I'm so, so happy I'm here. You know, I even, I even brought something with me. And St. Peter looks in the bag and says, why did you bring a paving stone? <laughs> I didn't tell it very well. <laughs> Get the idea. It took me a minute too. Yes. I can remember hearing that a similar joke in church when I was growing, <laughs> when I was still an evangelical. <laughs> It kind of puts it all into the evangelical perspective, doesn't it? Well, the literalism is the thing. And, and that's the other thing about the conference. So it we are not specifically and exclusively Christian bashing at this conference. We're also new age bashing and mm. everything else bashing, you know, any form of fundamentalism and certainty and orthodoxy and absolutism um, is what we're going to unpack and deconstruct. We have a speaker, a woman um, named Jurette Buglion. I wonder if I heard of her through you. Yeah, she she was on my podcast. That's probably why she's I an ex, her. yeah, new age kind of cult survivor. Yeah, she's going to be talking about being in a new age cult. Mm-hmm. And of course, our friend Janice Selby is going to be there. Yes. She'll be there live in person talking about the cult that she grew up in which was very Christian. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, mostly, and this isn't just me saying this, but if you look at all the research on religious trauma and toxic theology, the fact is that most of it does come from the Abrahamic Judeo-Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. When we come back from the break with Dr. Terry Daniel, we're going to get into a couple of other topics that I really wanted to talk about, whether we're going to be talking about the so-called theology of suffering as well as toxic theology. These are also are remnants of the whole religious trauma syndrome piece, the toxic theology. If you came out of religion or a cult or something like that, a high control group, these things may have been your experiences. And so I think you're going to resonate with what Terry and I talk about in the second half of this conversation. I just wanted to let you know what is coming up here in the next few episodes. I've mentioned before, I had a talk a while ago, a couple weeks back, with Dr. David DeAndre. He's actually an American expat living in Canada. Absolutely fascinating story. I think you're going to enjoy that conversation with Dr. David DeAndre coming out next. Then I've been chatting with Rachel Hunt. Now, she's from the Recovering from Religion organization. This is the same organization. You'll recall, if you've been listening to my podcast for a while, Dr. Daryl Ray. They're trying to do a fundraiser, so they've sent her to me as an ambassador. So we're having a a little bit of a hard time right now working out a day and a time where we can actually set up a recording, but that will be coming up at some point. She's going to be talking about the RFR, what they do, and I'm sure we're going to get into her story as well. So I'm really interested to talk to Rachel once we can set that up. And then I got an email the other day from one of my returning guests, the absolutely fantastic Catherine Stewart. She's, of course, the author of The Good News Club, as well as The Power Worshipper. She's been on this show a couple of times. We've talked about her ongoing investigations into the Christian right, what they're doing. And she actually emailed me because she noticed that I had written a piece, if you remember, a few months back in the Public Eye Journal. This is a publication of the Political Research Associates. People like Frederick Clarkson are part of this. I did a piece on 
R.J. Rushduni, the father of Christian Reconstructionism, and his impact on you know, homeschooling, Christian homeschooling, I should say, in the age of COVID. And that's been a really interesting piece. I've gotten a lot of interesting feedback on it, but I, I cited Catherine Stewart in it, and she emailed me and said, oh, thanks for citing me in your article. So I turned around and said, well, speaking of which, why don't we talk about your work, what you're doing lately, because it's been a long time. So the upshot of the whole thing is we are going to do a recording next week as I'm doing this now. We are going to do a recording on Monday the 21st. We're going to be talking about some work that she's done lately, reporting on some of the dark money that's funding some of these really, really increasingly far-right, Christian-right organizations and what they're doing. They're actually helping to spread Trump's big lie. And this is just really fascinating development, sort of in the evolution of the Dominionist, the Christian right, what they've done since Trump left office, not in a peaceful way, of course, since the January 6th insurrection. And they've just picked up that sort of baton and ran with it. So there's some really kind of concerning developments going on. So we're going to be talking about that. And I'm really excited to be touching base with Catherine to find out what she's doing lately. Now, before we get back into the conversation with Dr. Terry Daniel, I wanted to give a huge thank you to the latest Patreon supporters of MindShift Podcast. Thanks to Jane Little, as well as to Ryan Dizieu. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I think he's from the Netherlands. It's one of those Dutch names. It's hard to pronounce. But thank you to both of them for their support of the show. And in fact, it's becoming a Patreon supporter that gets you access to some of the really cool benefits of being a supporter. For example, we've got on the 27th of February, we've got our MindShift Zoom call with returning guest Rebecca Drumsta. We're going to be talking about her book, When Family Hurts. She was just on the show a while ago. Then in the month of March, we've got Michael from the Religious Addicts Anonymous He's going to be our guest on the March MindShift Zoom call. And then in April, we have got Dr. David DeAndre coming in. And we also have our patrons-only Zoom calls that we tend to do about the first month, uh, Sunday of every month. So that's some of the really cool benefits you get for being a Patreon supporter of the show. So thank you to Jane as well as to Ryan for your support. Now, let's get back on into this second half of the conversation with Dr. Death, Dr. Terry Daniel. As we pick up this thread of looking into toxic theology, how it relates to this issue of the so-called theology of suffering, as we continue to look at her conference on death, grief, and belief coming up in July of this year. What is it about religious trauma in, in particular? Because you could say, for example, did Job, if that story is historically true, whatever it is, but did he experience religious trauma? He's got to have all these, all this baggage. What is it about grief and loss and suffering and death that specifically relates to religious trauma or toxic theology, toxic beliefs? Well, it's the stuff that you're taught growing up about religion, you know, that um, in the end there will be judgment. So you're expecting to, you're going to, you know, let's say, I mean, I encounter this all the time. So let's say you're 68 years old and you've just been diagnosed with fourth stage cancer and you're going into hospice and you're, you've been a Christian all your life, but you haven't been a perfect human being, right? Because of the, you know the story of Job that as perfect as you might've been, there's still some little sin somewhere that you haven't confessed or that you haven't reconciled. Something's in there that's gonna get you. So you can never be sure that you're gonna go to heaven and the theology is set up that way to keep you on your toes, right? That you can mm -hmm. never be sure. So here you are you know, facing your death and you're terrified of this idea that this God is going to judge you and that you might end up in hell. And then your family members are also struggling with that. And that's what causes so much anxiety. Then you have the, you know, the microaggression kind of doctrines like um, once saved, always saved. So I have a case that I talk about a lot where this guy um, was, in his early seventies. And he said to me, well, I was a really bad dude all my life. I was a meth dealer. I sold meth to children. I raped women. I killed guys. You know, I was a real badass. And, um, then one day I was, uh, riding around with my biker crew and we were at this encampment and there were a bunch of Christians camping there having some kind of revival. So I went in there and I ended up getting saved. They all put hands on me and they saved my soul and I became a Christian. 
And that was cool, but I still went back to my criminal lifestyle. Nothing <laughs> right. changed. Still a hell's so, angel or whatever still, he was. <laughs> yeah. And, and I still sold meth and raped kids and did all that stuff. So here I am now in the hospital and I'm wondering, did that saving, does it stick? I mean, does it still count? Because now I'm going to die. Now I think I'm going to go to hell because I didn't change when I found Jesus. Mm -hmm. So number one, does that shit really work? And number two, if it does, is it going to work now when I'm dying? Great question. It is a great question. And what did you tell him? Well, this is a little technique that we learn as chaplains, um, which is just reflective conversation. You just turn it right back on him. I said, I do not have the answer to something like this, but are you still a Christian? Do you still embrace that faith? Oh, yes, I'm still a Christian. I love Jesus. Okay, well, what does your faith tell you? What does it teach? What does Jesus teach or what does you know, the Bible teach? He said, well, it teaches that as long as I have Jesus, I'm saved and I'm protected. And that's all I need. I'm forgiven. So, well, that's your answer. You just answered your own question. Mm -hmm. You're good to go. You're good. We don't know yeah. what's going to happen to him after. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you know, and he, and it, he just got this conf more confused look on his face because that just takes his whole theology and makes it even more confusing. Right. And mm -hmm. so then when I left the room, I'm thinking, okay, so for the next few days or weeks, he's going to be really trying to connect back with Jesus because he believes, according to this system that he believes, that that will protect him. So I mm. guess that's what he did. Yeah, I, I can resonate with that because obviously as an evangelical, there was always that question, can you lose your salvation? Who had it right, Calvin, Arminius? I mean, what was it? Were the Arminians right? Were the Calvinists right? You know, we used to have big, huge debates in Bible college and seminary about all that. And that was always a doubt in the back of my mind too. Can I lose my salvation? Have I committed the unpardonable sin? Am I going to go to hell now or what? You know, praying the sinner's prayer thousands of times, you know. So talk about religious trauma syndrome, eh? Well, the sinner's prayer is one of the sickest things I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And and speaking of grief, I'll, I'll say this. There is a grief group called Grief Share. One word, Grief Share. They have a Facebook uh, group and they're a huge organization. They have meetings all over the country. And they're a Christian group, but they're kind, they kind of don't say that very loud publicly. And if you look at their website, um, millions of millions, I don't know, thousands, I don't know how many, lots of people have been helped by this group. But if you dig down into their website, you see it, find a page that's called God, why am I suffering? And if you read that page, it basically says, you're suffering because you're disobedient to God. Now, these are people whose children have died, who are mm. really in deep pain, right? And it says on this page, to get out of your suffering, here's what you do say the sinner's prayer. And I didn't even know what the sinner's prayer was until I read this and I showed it to a, another ex-evangelical friend of mine. And he said, oh yeah, that's the sinner's prayer. We all know that one. And it basically says, I'm a worthless piece of shit and I deserve this terrible suffering. So God, just please relieve me of it because I turned my life over to you or something, right? You'd know mm -hmm. it better than I do. Oh, I prayed it thousands of times. In fact, I used to teach a class the theology of suffering. You would have loved to sit in on my theology of suffering. I love class. that title. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was all about basically looking all through the Bible, trying to come up with as many examples as we could of people who encountered suffering like Job and other people, and then trying to figure out what caused it in, in you know, evangelical terms. Was it God punishing them? Was it because of unconfessed sin? Was it because in the case of Job, it wasn't that, you know, so we went through all these examples. And even as a Christian, though, the upshot of the whole thing was when, therefore, then when suffering does come into your life, you've got to figure out what the root cause is. Like you said, there is somehow a cause. It's a cause and effect. You know, I was listening to a book the other day and she was talking about when like Hurricane Katrina, you know, people like Franklin Graham, they were saying well, this is because of Mardi Gras. That, that's why this happened. It was because of all the sin in New Orleans, you know. And, of course, Jerry Falwell blamed 9-11 on the gays and the abortionists and the liberals and people for the American way. And so they're, they're, they're ready to point to an absolute cause and effect when even a natural disaster occurs or a terrorist attack, something like that. 
They always do that with natural. Mm -hmm. I think it was Pat Robertson that said the earthquake in Haiti was because of gay people. Yeah. Because because gay marriage had been legalized or something like that. Or the wildfires in California. So there's always a connection between somebody's sin or something's wrong. And these, and they're, you know, they're, this is what Franklin Graham said, you know, maybe now the people of Louisiana and New Orleans will wake up and repent. Maybe a big revival will come off the back of this horrible tragedy uh wow you know you think okay that's where they go with it that's where they're taking it that could lead to religious trauma and all sorts of things it starts with religious trauma and it leads to religious trauma it's religious Mm -hmm. trauma from the minute you're born till the minute you die you know if you if you spend a life steeped in that and this i you know it's human nature to look for something to blame and also something to be grateful for you know so we we create god in this idea, like, well, the crops failed, God must be mad at us. Or maybe we, Mm -hmm. you know, we didn't make a sacrifice to the corn God, we made it to the wheat God. And that's why the corn didn't grow. You know, I mean, it's Mm -hmm. a human thing to look for that. But what happens with Judeo Christian theology is it all ends up turning back on us as the bad guy, I guess, because of original sin, because of that concept. That, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're all we're just born bad and flawed and stained. And our whole purpose here is to find our way out of that. And the only way to find our way out of that is through Jesus somehow. Yeah. And, you know, what a whacked out concept. Mm-hmm. And it's it brand new in human history. It's only been around for 2000 years. So. You know, what did we think before that? Well, before that, we had polytheism and we had multiple gods. And that worked pretty well for people because you had a God that you could connect with for various different experiences in your life. And they were really representations of your inner archetypes. Mm -hmm. So if you were if you were going to have a baby or you wanted to get pregnant, you would do an offering to the fertility goddess. Or if you were going to go to war, you would do an offering to the war God, and it would strengthen that part of yourself, the warrior part, or the inner mother part. That made a lot of sense. And monotheism, you know, of the Hebrews and Yahweh, the ultimate warrior God came along. And they said, no, we're going to, our God's going to go above all those other little gods. And that was because that particular tribe of people wanted to be above all the other tribes of people. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, their whole intention was um, colonization and taking over the world. That's what the whole Old Testament is about, real estate and politics. So they made up a God that supported that. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's where it all came from. Yeah. You know, and as you said, the three Abrahamic religions, when you break them down into their kind of core tenets, they're remarkably similar, especially in their fundamentalist iterations, aren't they? Judaism, Islam, and fundamentalist Christianity in many ways are very almost indistinguishable, aren't they, in terms of their core beliefs and practices and the way they treat their followers. Yeah, because one, well, one was built off another one. You mm-hmm. know, they're just iterations of the same thing. You yeah. know, the God that the fundamentalist, you know, the Baptists, the Presbyterians, and you, all of them, it's the same God, of the God of the Hebrews. Now, one of the things that's debated a lot uh, in scholarship now is we don't call it the Old Testament and the New Testament anymore. They call it the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible, because if you say old and new, it implies that the Christian version is an improvement upon the Hebrew version. Mm-hmm. And Christians like that idea because they think, yeah, you know, this this old God was you know, didn't have a lot of options for forgiveness or punishment because they really didn't have an afterlife and there really wasn't a lot of theology in it. So our new guy, Jesus, is bringing in more stuff that's more useful and therefore it's new and better. But um, theologians don't like that idea too much because Hmm. it's a hierarchy, like this one's better than the other one. And, you know, to me, they're both equally terrible it can be well one of the things i like about your website i appreciate about it is you talk about toxic theology i think you mentioned that before something i've been made aware of recently is this idea of religious addiction it's almost like a compulsive addiction and reading through one of your definitions of what causes toxic theology 
The website says when individuals feel that they are under the constant supervision of an irrational God who randomly dispenses joy or sorrow, reward or punishment, it can create lifelong feelings of powerlessness, unworthiness, and enduring shame. And I grew up in that sort of a context. That was the God that I identified with as a fundamentalist Christian. And I developed what I call, what people call religious scrupulosity, which I'm now starting to see was some form of religious addiction, which in itself can produce all sorts of trauma. Have you done any work around this idea of religious addiction and this scrupulosity piece? I really haven't because most of the people that I work with, they're not addicted anymore. They're, they're, the people who come to me are on their way out. So I don't have the privilege of encountering many people who are that deeply into it. But the addiction you know, comes from just the way that you're programmed and you're programmed to that from three years old, like you were. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you're told as a child that if you don't have this and you don't do this, I don't know, do they tell you when you're three that you're going to hell? If you don't conform, you don't have much choice when you're three, you have to do what yeah. your parents tell you to. I heard it. Yeah. When yeah. I, was, I was that young, I remember going to, when I was probably about five or six, we used to go across in the summertime to some Christian's house in another neighborhood adjacent to ours. And we'd sit there for, you know, it was like, kind of like a vacation Bible school, but it was at their house. And they went, they went through the flannel graphs on the chart and everything, you know, to, with like flames of hell and everything. And I can remember coming home absolutely terrified as just a young, young kid. So yeah, I was exposed to toxic theology at a very young age. So the addiction is because it's the only place that seems safe, just like, you know, Mm -hmm. heroin is the only place that seems safe when you're addicted to heroin. It's the only place where you feel comfortable, right? So being in this religion is the only place that feels comfortable. And um, here's a quote from Janet Heimlich from the same page on the website that you're looking at. She says, children raised in this mindset fail to develop critical thinking skills and intellectual autonomy, you know, so you don't grow up in a healthy way. And they have so much fear of God that they project their fear of God onto everything else in the world and everything outside of them. So Mm. anything outside this protected space is a threat. So that would explain how easy it would be to become addicted to religion. Oh, it is. So who is this conference for? Because on the landing page, you talk about the people who are going to be a part of it. And you say it's for anybody who is spiritual, but not religious, atheist, non-believer, former believer, or never believer. There's quite a a spectrum here, struggling (laughs) to leave a high demand religious structure, questioning an inherited faith or chosen faith tradition, recovering from religious trauma, which we talked about, a professional who works with religious trauma, or finally deconstructing childhood religious indoctrination. Does that cover the spectrum of people that you want to come to this conference? Yeah, exactly. The only thing that you don't see on that list are faithful believers of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I didn't see that on the list. There's no <laughs> bullet point. You need to add one on there, Terry. Update your website. Come on. What's wrong with you? Well, you know what? Maybe I should. I mean, really, because, because there is, I mean, sure, the faithful believers of Jesus Christ are more than welcome. I would love to have them in the sure. room. You know, they might end up protesting outside in front of the hotel instead Maybe. of being in the room. And that would be great, too. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, anybody who's questioning, I think that's, that's a pretty fair, a pretty fair list, you know, this, Mm -hmm. and what's interesting is I'm doing a a symposium at the end of this month. It's a day long online symposium on this same topic. It's, it's more for like counselors and psychologists, and it's about, um, positive and negative religious coping when facing death and grief. And I'm getting such a phenomenal response to I thought maybe I'd get 30 people. I think I've got like 150 people signed up for it now. Mm -hmm. So professionals in this field um, are getting really interested in this. And more and more, as the religious landscape of America changes, um, according to all the recent studies, the Pew and Gallup studies from last year, uh, this is coming out into the open. This is coming out of the closet. Um, people aren't putting up with this uh, doctrinal stuff anymore like they Mm -hmm. used to. Well, and certainly we know that in America, I don't know how it is in other parts of the world, not as much in this country and the UK, but 
a lot of the political divide the last four or five years over the Trump support by evangelical. That's another piece of this. I know we haven't touched on that, but it has it has absolutely destroyed families, relationships. You know, it's 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 absolutely a divisive, polarizing factor, certainly in the states right now, isn't it? You got to tie religion into all that as well. Yeah, we cannot separate it from the the political climate that we're in yeah, right now. The, evangel- the evangelicals have so much come to the forefront of media attention in the last couple of years mm-hmm. that everybody knows about them and everybody knows how much power they wield. And that's pushing people away. But I think statistically, I've heard that the evangelical churches are not losing followers as much as we thought, but the the numbers are dropping from more mainstream mainline churches and the evangelical numbers are actually getting bigger. I don't have the stats on that. Maybe you know something about That'll that. That'll be interesting. There's all uh, these what, polls going around, aren't they? Certainly the, the number of nuns is going up, the people who have no religious affiliation. As It seems like as new generations come up, they're, they're less and less inclined to be a part of any religion full stop. But there's a whole lot of people that are still part of churches out there, isn't it? It'd be interesting yeah. to track it. Well, the millennials are um, statistically the least religious generation that we've ever had. Period. That is true. Yeah, we know yeah. that. So that's a good have, trend. That's a really good trend. And I just happen to have some statistics right in front of me because I'm working on a paper about this and it just happens mm-hmm. to be up on my computer. So uh, the 21, 2021 statistics from Pew Research Center show that 63% of the U.S. population identifies as Christian, which is 12 points lower than it was 10 years ago. So mm. it dropped 10 percentage points in 10 years. I'm sorry, 12 percentage points. And uh, here's another one. Where is it? Uh, and then a Gallup poll, same time period last year, showed that membership, membership in a church, synagogue, or mosque dropped 20 points in the last 20 years due primarily to an increase in the number of Americans who have no religious preference, none. Mm. So, yeah, so one percentage point per year, basically. It is slowly slipping, chipping away. Yeah, We're doing our best to be a part of that, I think, you and I and other people yes. like us. Well, what about the logistics of this conference? Because we mentioned at the top of the show, it's going to be held in Portland, Oregon, July 15th through 17th of this year. How can people get a hold of you? What's the best way to find out more information about the conference? Because looking at the website, there's a mailing list as well. Is that mm-hmm. the best way to get a start on it? Well, go to the website, deathgriefandbelief.com. You'll see everything you need to know about the conference there. And then click on the subscribe button to get on the email list. And that way you can be in touch with all the other stuff we're doing. I mean, we have little symposiums and workshops and things all the time. Also, if you join the email list, you get a free uh, digital version of my new book, Grief and God, When Religion Does More Harm Than Healing. And we also have a little perk for people who listen to the MindShift podcast, Um I'm setting up, I don't think I've done it yet. I'm going to do it right now while I'm thinking of it. Um, A discount code, if you register for the conference, and that's for the live conference, not for the uh, recording, and you use the discount code MindShift, you'll get $25 off the general. Yes, screaming deal. Yeah. So yeah, we definitely want to promote that. And then how can people find you if they want to contact you personally? Is there a way to do it via the website or what's your social media presence? Um, well, you can email me at office at deathgriefandbelief.com, but you'll also find that email link on the website. We've got a Facebook group called Death, Grief, and Belief. Um, and so those are the two best ways, really, to find mm-hmm. me. This is, this is the work that I am really steeped in and dedicated to. Right, I've got other websites and other things, but th- this is the one. This is right in your wheelhouse for sure. Right there, right now. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping that people will certainly go on the site and there's a lot of good resources, as we've been mentioning, just on the site about toxic theology. There's a whole page on resources, as well as, as you say, other upcoming events. So this is not the only thing, but hopefully people can make it to the live conference. But I'm kind of heartened to know that they can do it remotely in a way 
So that's good news. If you're in South Africa or South Korea or the UK, like me, you can still be a part of this conference on some level, can you? Absolutely. I mean, it won't be interactive because you won't be there live in real time, but you'll Mm -hmm. have, I don't even know how many hours of recording it is. It's probably 15 or 18 hours of presentations. And so you'll get to hear every single presenter. Um, And you can listen to those recordings forever and ever and ever Mm -hmm. into eternity and after. (laughs) As you're sitting on the clouds, uh, stroking your harp and all that, (laughs) or in the flames of hell, maybe. I don't know. Oh, yeah. We're all going to be in hell for sure. Oh, we're all in hell. We're going to hell for sure. The whole Sheraton Hotel will just get picked up and sent right straight to hell with all this. Struck by lightning. Yeah, just straight. (laughs) Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. And then before we go, I was going to mention, I think we talked about this before, but I'm going to be on your Ask Dr. Death podcast at some point. We've made a date sometime in February of this year to talk about a little bit of a teaser about what I'm going to be talking about. So I'm really looking forward to that as well, as well as the the actual conference coming up in July. And you can find that at askdrdeath.com. And it's doctor spelled out. It's not DR because mm-hmm. Dr. Death is Jack Kevorkian. That's oh. what they called him. So yeah. it's, it's Dr. Ask Dr. Death spell. And it's funny where that name came from. When I got my doctorate and I started teaching, one of my friends said, you know, your students are going to laugh and call you Dr. Death. And it's going to be like the kids are going to stand around the campus going, wow, did you take that class with Dr. Death last year? That was so awesome. And I went, I love that. I'm going to use that. I I'm want using- to be Dr. Death. So that's how it came about. Absolutely. It's a great name, a memorable name for the podcast. So look for that Dr. Death episode as well. So thank you so much, Dr. Terry Daniel. I'm so looking forward to being a part of this conference. And I hope off the back of this podcast and other ways that you promote it, that people will be joining you in July in Portland. I hope so too, Dr. Clint. And I'm just always so thrilled to talk to you. And I love your podcast and I love your work so much. And by the way, everybody, Clint has been on Ask Dr. Death once before talking about his own upbringing and his rapture anxiety, mm. which is a yes, really important thing. That's such it's an a interesting thing. story. Absolutely is a thing. Well, thank you, Terry. I will be speaking to you later. All the best with your conference. And I'm sure we'll be promoting it a little bit more as time goes on. Yes, my friend. Thank you so much. 